Amen. We're going to get it. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Somebody say within us. Amen. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations. This is LCM. This is a church that has been founded on the principles that you see right back behind me, where we see one life that is transformed. It impacts one family, and we're able to reach the nations as a result of it. I'm going to get one of the men in this house who has been most transformed in the last season. I'm going to ask Spencer McLean to come on forward to get us kicked off this morning. You know, it, it is true. I, I'm just like you guys. I have been a, a life that's transformed. 100%. All kinds, man. The Lord is also bringing a family into order right now. It is incredible. Randy, would you come up here with me? Actually, I'm going to come get you. Can you hear me? Okay, amen. I've seen this in my dreams a couple dozen times. This is everything that the Lord has been showing me. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 12. We're going to read 1 through 6. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation, and I will trust, and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Verse 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, and make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim the name is exalted. Verse 5, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously, and let this be made known in all the earth. And finally, verse 6, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel, Randy. In Tennessee, I told you, there's going to be no one that loved you more. No one's going to love those boys more. Amen. That's true. He formed us and fashioned us together for his purpose for the next generation. He loves us. And Randy, I love you with all of my heart, yeah. with everything that I am. So Randy... Randy, will you marry me? Absolutely. 
I didn't realize anybody else was here. Amen. Man, is it good to see prophecy fulfilled. You're never 100% sure. But it is really good when the grace of God gets us there. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, may he bless these boys. Oh, yeah. What the Lord is doing in the two of you is going to secure generations. This is very, very much about the two of you, but it's more so about the children that God has given you. You're going to minister all the days of your life, and we're going to raise up arrows that are fired into the Middle East, and we are going to win. We all have scriptures, encouragements, and prophecies for you because we had the benefit of knowing this day was coming. And then we want to pray for you. Church, are y'all happy for them? Yeah! <laughs> Ephesians 3 and beginning in verse 14 says this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And you know that this is from whom all fatherhood flows. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is such a joyous time today to see what the Lord has actually orchestrated, what he has called, and what he is making come to pass. That you will be able to know the absolute power of his presence in your daily lives. That you two are going to be ministering for the rest of your lives, and you're going to do it together. You're going to not only raise sons and daughters, who by the way, this little Brady Bunch that's going to get together is pretty amazing. Sons who need a father, daughters who need the kind of mother that you are, and all the rest of the children that you will have are going to glorify God, and we are so honored to be here with you today. Spence, can we get out of you another year? That goes perfectly with Joel 2.23. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. Guys, it is a testimony to the Lord and to the work that God has done in each one of you. That peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. This overflowing and abundance of harvest and righteousness 
is what will flow from your home. It'll be the very thing that defines the foundation of your home. And men and women will come out of your house that will magnify and further the work that God has been investing in you since day one. We love you guys. Spencer and Randy, Psalm 63, starting in verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. I long for you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. The Lord allowed both of you to experience this dry and parched land, lack of water. But this morning, he is re-wetting that land in all kinds of amazing ways. And we could not be any more excited about what God has established in this place this morning. In fact, verse 2 says, yes, in the sanctuary, I have seen you and witnessed your power and splendor. Because experiencing your loyal love is better than life itself, my lips will praise you. The loyal love that each one of you so longed for, so desired, so wanted as part of your life, God has delivered you and caused you to experience both his loyal love and the loyal love that will come from each other so that both your sons and your daughters will grow up in the security of that loyal love flowing from you and it will affect your generations in a mighty way. You're going to see the power of God as it goes through generation to generation to generation. And we're so with you and proud of you. Spencer and Randy, we could not be any more excited for what God has done. I want to read to you from Ruth before we begin to pray for you. It says, Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. We want to affirm today we are witnesses of what God has caused to come into being. Yeah! May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, Spencer, like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrath and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who tomorrow bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. We're prophesying to you today that God is sparking breakthrough in this marriage. We say we are witnesses of what is yet to come. And we say, Lord, we stand with your judgments. May they become famous throughout Israel. The offspring you have already given them and the offspring that is to come. Let them be anointed now in advance as we say they will lead your people, mighty one. Some of these big boys take two. Sometimes it takes two. I got our psalm. It's going to get you. Happy for you guys. Psalm 126. 
This is when the scripture lets the goose loose, my friend. (laughs) When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, when he restored the fortunes of Spencer McLean, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the strings of the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Mm. And he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy and bringing sheaves with him. Yeah! Yeah! Church, we're going to take a minute and just pray for this beautiful new couple. Can somebody say five out of five times? God is good. Habakkuk tells us that when you get a revelation, write it down, make it plain. Even if it lingers, wait for it. It will not prove false. This is exactly what it looks like to be led of the spirit. Sometimes it takes a minute. That makes it beautiful. Is this a beautiful day? We're going to pray for them. We'll put our hands on them. You pray. Okay. This is We don't have a schedule. I'm very thankful we don't have to answer to a pontiff in Rome somewhere. We get to do what we, this is a family event. And this is worth celebrating. Yes, elders, y'all, y'all should be up here. What you set in motion, no man can stop, Lord God. What you call into being, Father God, shall come to pass. Father God, we come before you this day as we give you glory and honor, Lord God, for this unity. We pray, Father God, that your power and your word comes true and be fulfilled in this unity and in these these children, Father God, for generations to come. As your word and your very spirit continues to grow in them and point directions for the God in their life. Yes, Father God, truly, truly you have stirred up things, Father God, in our midst. And you have called this to pass, Lord, as we come before you, Father God. As you call them to be stable, Lord God. You call them to to rise up and to minister to others, Father God. 
that their sons and their daughters, Lord God, will reach across the nations, Lord God, and across this world, that your word shall be brought forth through them, Lord God. As you unite them, they unite others, Lord God, as your fire is lit in Jesus' name. Mighty God, we rejoice in your miracles, Father. <laughs> Father, we rejoice today at the amazing restoration that you have provided, Father, in this couple. Father, we just uh, give you the highest praise now, Lord, because you are truly the God of miracles, Lord. Father, I pray that your good spirit, Father, would continue to lead them in all things, mighty King. Father, I pray, Lord, that generations coming behind them will live and learn and magnify the things that you are showing us today, mighty God. Father, we give you the praise today, Lord, because you are the only one that can make something like this happen, mighty King. Father, we thank you for all the things that you have revealed to us and showed us in this process, Lord. And Lord, I thank you for humble hearts, mighty God. Father, we praise you. We rejoice with you today, mighty God. Mighty one, we thank you. We thank you for your promises, Lord. We thank you that, that what you say comes to pass, mighty God. We thank you that what the enemy tried to destroy and separate you have brought back and forged with your spirit, mighty God, into something stronger that will go into the, go into the nations, mighty God, that the quiver is being filled again, mighty God, that the arrows are being, are being shot off, mighty God, that the bow still holds the tension that it needs, mighty God. Lord, we, we bless this family, mighty God. We ask that you bless, that you bless them, Lord, and for the generations that are to come, the fathers and mothers that are going to come from this house and come from their, their children, mighty God. Lord, we love you and we thank you for them and we shout for joy right now, Jesus. Hallelujah! Hallelujah, church! Somebody say, one life! One, life. one, family. one family! In one nation. one nation! This is how we do that. Are y'all excited for them? Yeah. Then rejoice! Good morning, LCM. Good morning. Today is March 12th, 2023. Well, before I announce this morning's uh, message and the title to it, I just think we need one more shot of hallelujah in the house. Hallelujah! I mean, a Spencer McLean kind of hallelujah. Hallelujah! <laughs> yeah, way to get her up. Are you guys ready for the title? Yeah. Title to, to today's message is Foundational Elements. Say Foundational Elements. Foundational Elements. So look, over the course of the past few weeks, our focus has been set on the goal of being fathers in the faith who raise up sons that shine with greater glory. As our light is dimming, theirs is dawning. 
illuminating the present and future works that must be accomplished well beyond the years of our prime. You know, this room, this house, it's filled with something. It's filled with men. I said it's filled with men. Oh, that warms my soul. Come on, old son. It's filled with men who, like Abraham, have been credited with the call to be a father of many. Many sons born within and outside of their own households. Sons of promise. Sons of future achievements that will continue the work established by the same steps of faith as their fathers. So, like all fathers, it begins with the seed of hope that then is birthed into a reality as a son. The thoughts and aspirations of a father is that his son will build onto what has been established, furthering the work that has been founded from the ground up, and even going to the point of magnifying the pattern which was handed down to the son. Think of it like building a house. Has anybody ever built a house here? Yes. Well, the first and most essential building block of a house is a foundation. Very good. This foundation, it'll actually serve as a guide that supports and upholds the weight and span of the materials that then will lie upon it. With precision, Charlie, not plumb some, but with precision, that two by eight, 12, whatever it is, frame of the foundation, it has to be formed to exact measurements, filled with a concrete slurry that then cures into a fortified slab, made ready for the structure to rise on its shoulders. You know, when you think of fathers and sons, we want to draw, you, draw your attention to something. When you're thinking of fathers and sons, you think of something like this. Isn't this a magnificent picture of a father raising his son? This is what we think of. This is what we envision when we imagine a father raising his son and a son following his father. You see a mighty man of God, Paul Rosales, on the screen. Yeah. And you see his son Samuel on his shoulders. His son is young. His son depends on him. His son needs him for everything. And Paul Rosales is the kind of man that is going to give it to him. His son is dependent on him. And Paul knows it. And therefore, he is going to give him everything that Samuel needs. This father's mezuzah is clear, hold, and build. And his son needs him to clear, hold, and build in his life. When you think of this, you imagine Paul on a construction site, teaching Samuel to drive a nail into a board. Samuel can't do it. He doesn't have the strength to do it, but Paul is right there helping him hold the hammer, and Paul is nailing it in for him, teaching it every step of the way. They are building a form of a foundation that will be their future home. This is a great image of a foundational father and a secure son who knows that he needs his father to teach him. 
Well, this imagery is precisely Paul's sentiment expressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to have a slide that shows it in the LSB. Y'all ready? 1 Corinthians 3, 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder. I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds it. So look, in this passage, Paul's reflecting on the ongoing work in his ministry of establishing sons. You know, in his, his descriptions, he's using trade language in order to paint a picture of the necessary facets of this process. So notice that he calls himself a fellow worker of God, and he is calling his sons at Corinth God's building. Or put another way, God's workmanship. So therefore, in Paul's view, he rightly credits the role of being a father to being in partnership with God to build up a connected structure of sons. So in doing this, he articulates the first necessary step to building sons, and that is laying a foundation. But also notice, and you have to appreciate the confidence of Paul expressed here, that the terms that he uses about his own work is like a wise master builder. So what this is indicating is Paul's diligent and care that he has got to put forth in this effort of laying a foundation. Oh, come on. Say diligence, diligence. And, care. and care. Fathers in this house, how are you building? Are you building with wisdom and painstaking mastery? Are you building with care and diligence? Well... We know that is why you are here. You wouldn't be here if that is not what you wanted. We do, however, want you to notice another detail in Paul's address. He stated that he laid a foundation and another is building on it. This causes all kinds of questions to stir in our minds. Who is this person? Who is this other person building on the foundation that Paul laid? Is he different from Paul? Is he like Paul in any kind of way? Do we even know who this man is? Well, to start with, let's start by looking at the Greek word for another. We want to show you this slide. The Greek word for another is alos. It means another numerically, like a second person, but of the same kind. It is in contrast to heteros, another word for another in Greek, which means another of a different kind. But this is alos. It means another person qualitatively, the same quality, the same quality as Paul, and this word is marking succession. It's another person who is just like Paul, of the same kind, the same quality as Paul, but it is marking a succession after Paul. You see, this fellow worker with Paul is of the same kind as Paul. He is of the same character. He is of the same capacity as Paul. 
He is of the same consistency as Paul, and he is of the same competency as Paul. Better than that, he is the one who has succeeded Paul in every way, and he is building on what Paul laid down. This certainly serves to illustrate Paul's point that he served to lay a foundation, and now the one who is building on it has succeeded him in God's building project. This, of course, does not mean that either of the men have more value than the other. But that one man, Paul, was first and therefore had to lay a foundation in this fellow worker so that they can work on God's building together. All right, so through our our course of time at LCM, we've had many building projects. So whether it be fencing, or actually building a house. Pouring concrete is not an easy task. Laying a foundation is nothing for the uh, faint at heart. It's, it's laborious, isn't it, Rick? Especially when you're doing piers that support an actual house. Well, after all that toil, after all that labor, wouldn't you want to know that you can entrust what is built upon it to be just as much taken care of as the foundation was, that that work was going to continue with success. So let's take a a brief moment to see if we can clearly identify who this unnamed incognito fellow worker was so that we can glean some other important truths into his and Paul's relationship. So as you're looking at this next slide, Any cursory reading of 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 4 will yield these results. Verse 4, chapter 3 says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow who? Apollos. Are you not being merely human? You go on down to verse 5, and the argument Paul's making is getting clear. What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. In verse 6, Paul says, I planted and Apollos watered. In 1 Corinthians 3, 21 and 22, he says, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos. In chapter 4, verse 1, this is how one should regard us collectively. He's talking about Paul and Apollos. And in 4, 6, he says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos, for your benefit, brothers. So it should be quite clear when you read 1 Corinthians 3 and 4 in its entirety that the man that Paul is talking about is Apollos. He is the fellow worker. He is the another who is of the same kind and quality as Paul. Now, many in this room are aware that Paul fathered men like Timothy and Titus, and Onesimus in the faith. But sadly, not much is known about Paul and Apollos' relationship. That's sad because it is rich with insight. You know, did you guys catch in that last slide that the verses that preceded 1 Corinthians 3, 9, for we are God's fellow workers, and the verses that follow after it are a constant comparison an introduction of Paul and Apollos, Paul and Apollos, even up to verse 8 that precedes the, what the slide was in the uh, 
LSB was, for we, well, that we contextually is Paul and Apollos, and it continues well afterwards. Well, if you read Acts chapter 18 and 19, you will see the introduction of Apollos into the biblical narrative. What we do know from those chapters is that Apollos was a Jew from Alexandria. And when Apollos enters into the biblical narrative, he is noted as being a learned man and possessing a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed about the way of the Lord. He spoke with great fervor. And in fact, he taught about Jesus accurately, and he knew about the baptism of John, the baptism of repentance. Well, all of this is mind-blowing and fascinating. There is a detail that cannot be missed, and it's found in Acts chapter 18, verse 26. Verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. You should ponder on what that really means. The way more adequately. You see, as, as, as knowledgeable as Apollos was, Priscilla and Aquila explained the way more adequately. It's important for you to know that Paul met Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth in the beginning of Acts chapter 18. Paul stayed with them for a while and they became Paul's co-workers in the gospel. They joined Paul as he taught in the synagogues every Sabbath and as he taught the word of God in Corinth for a year and a half, Priscilla and Aquila gained something from Paul and they became his fellow workers. For a year and a half, Paul worked to lay a foundation in Priscilla and Aquila and they became his fellow co-workers. Eventually, Priscilla and Aquila met Apollos and they began to lay a more adequate foundation in Apollos. They laid it in his life and Apollos became a co-worker of a Priscilla and Aquila. Now, by the time we see him in 1 Corinthians 3, he is working with Paul directly. And Paul has sufficiently laid a foundation in his spiritual son, Apollos, that he can now say about Apollos, he is another like me. He is another of the same quality as I am. In fact, he is marking succession from me. He is my brother and fellow co-worker. Apollos is the man who is now a brother to Paul. He started as a son, but he is now a brother to Paul. And he is building on the foundation that his brother and father, Paul, laid. You know, the relationship between Paul and Apollos... It rose to the point where both men were wise master builders. And what we want to highlight to you is the reason why we gave this message the title, Foundational Elements. We want to give you seven foundational elements that Paul and Apollos emulated from their fathers, the patriarchs and the great men of faith in the Tanakh. So let's take a look at some of the writings of Paul's brother and fellow workmen to gain insight into their foundational elements. Everybody start, turn with us to Hebrews Chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 8. So Hebrews 11, 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed 
and went, even though he did not know where he was going. So the first act of Abraham's faith to obey and go into the unknown was demonstrating a trust in God that God would give him direction as he was in motion, not as he was stationary waiting to be moved. Look, this reminds me of many of you guys, meaning that acting in faith to a place you did not know. You were dwelling in a spiritually dry and idolatrous land and began to sense the call of God to go to a land that he would choose even though you did not know where that would be. I mean, stirring your soul, causing you to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And it was God who directed your steps to here at LCM. So look, you just thought that you were going to the grocery store that day to buy another gallon of milk, to get another $25 dozen of eggs. Yeah. Inflation. You just thought that you were going to go visit an old friend from the years back and have a cup of coffee. But the Lord directed each one of your steps to this family of believers, and you have been an integral part of this body ever since. When, when our physical location was right down the road on Eldridge, and across the street there's this wonderful place to go shopping called Food Town, Mario and Alicia Clement thought they were just going to the grocery store. God had been stirring their souls, making them cry out in desperation, and they looked across the street and saw the sign for life-changing ministries and fellowship. And they was like, yeah, we, we got to do something. Let's just give this a try. And my, my how, they, how they become a foundational family in this church. I mean, how can I not think about... Larissa Linton. Lou was just, you know, hanging up all of the disarrayed clothes at Ross. Organizing. But desperate in her soul for the family of God. She just didn't know where to find it. Then in strolls a couple of folks from LCM. Sparks a conversation. And now, now... She is a matriarch in this house married to a patriarch. And they are having sons rise on their shoulders. We can look around and have so many testimonies of how God led you into the unknown, but it was something more grand than you could have ever imagined. But it began somewhere. Let's continue in verse 9. Verse 9. And know about this passage. This is the writings of Paul's fellow co-worker and brother. I wonder why they are using this as their foundational element. The trust-grounded obedience of the faith of Abraham. Perhaps Paul and his fellow brother learned something here. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. You see, once Abraham and his family were led to the land of promise and inheritance, he made it his home. He was led by trust-grounded obedience to a place that he did not know he was going. 
But once God revealed where he was going, he made it his home. He stayed there. Even though he was like a stranger in a foreign country. He forgot completely what was behind. And he strained toward what is ahead. While he was there, he raised his sons to emulate his way of life. And thereby becoming co-heirs with him through the same faith that he had. The same trust-grounded obedience. You know who this reminds us of? This reminds us of the Molochs. God led the Molochs through a journey to this house, and they made it their home. When they showed up, like all of us, they were strangers in a foreign country. But by faith and trust-grounded obedience, they knew God had said, this is the place that they should dwell, and they made it their home. And by faith, they bore sons and daughters who have only known the faith walk at LCM, and they are increasing in faith each and every day like co-heirs with them. Aren't we a blessed family to have the foundation of trust-grounded obedience that blesses each other? One more verse in Hebrews 11, and that is verse 11. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. So like many of you in the room, Abraham faced impossible odds and yet continued to move forward in faithful resolve because he knew God and he knew that God would be faithful to his promise. If he said it, he would do it. This reminds us of the Peñas, Ray and Ruby, who by the time they arrived at LCM, all of their kids had already moved out of their house. They could have fallen into a trap of what do we have have to offer? But they did not fall into it. Amen. They are here today because they consider him faithful who had made the promise. And they do have a place and purpose in this house. Ray and Ruby, your purpose is more clear now than ever in the way that you guys have been enabled to become a father and mother in the faith to many of the young men and women in this church. What you're doing on Monday nights is foundational in their lives. And you're sharing from the overflow of your own engagement with the scripture and it's consistently building with life. Abraham was already an exalted father as reflected in his name, Abram. But as his trust grew, Abraham became more enabled to father men in the promise because of his faith, because of his trust, grounded obedience. So we have a slide for you. And it starts with the first of seven foundational elements, trust, grounded obedience. So in order to become a wise master builder, you must begin with trust, grounded obedience. This is everything to us. This is where it starts to become a wise master builder. Did you hear that Abraham was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful? Trust-grounded obedience is what enables you to father other people better. You cannot do it without trust-grounded obedience being demonstrated in your action. It is what all of these elements lay on. It is what they are hinged on. It's where they start. So this brings us to our second foundational element that is built on top of trust-grounded obedience. And that is sacrifice. Let's go to Genesis 22 one through three. 
And we're going to see how this trust-grounded obedience led to sacrifice in Abraham's life. Genesis 22, 1 through 3 says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. You see, while Abraham's initial act of trust-grounded obedience brought him to the land of promise, this was the pinnacle of all sacrificial moments he experienced. Leading his son to become a burnt offering far outweighs the piercing effect of seeing your son move out and start a home or giving your daughter away in marriage. And yet, God required ongoing and increasing levels of sacrifice in order to achieve the promises that he made. Do you see now that it is not possible for Abraham to make this sacrifice unless he already had trust-grounded obedience? In fact, he didn't even know where he was going to go make the sacrifice. God told him, go to the place I will show you. He had to have trust-grounded obedience lead him into sacrifice. Now again, we're going to see Paul's fellow worker write about this foundational element of Abraham's sacrifice and how he was able to do it in Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19. Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. He reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So trust-grounded obedience is what facilitates the act of sacrifice. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. So therefore, he was willing to sacrifice all. This is what is required of you, men and women of God in this room. Look, as you can see in Abraham's life and in your own, an ever-increasing measure of faith needs to be substantive so that it strengthens your resolve to act with ever-increasing sacrifice. The kingdom of God is always expanding. So therefore, our faith and our sacrifice are as well. Anyone who has ever climbed the mountain of pastoring teenagers can surely testify to the demand of ever-increasing faith and ever-increasing sacrifice. So what follows this is the foundational element of holding up the standard. Let's look at the next slide. Number three, holding up the standard. Everyone turn your Bibles to Exodus 17 and say foundational elements as you're turning. Verse eight, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. 
tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Before we really dig into this, there's something that you need to know about what's happening here. Most of us picture just Moses raising up his hands, like he's praising the Lord or giving a hallelujah, and that is what's happening, and that's what's causing the battle to be won by Joshua. Well, what we have to realize is what is he holding in his hands as he is raising them? The staff of God. This was the same staff that guided the flock while Moses spent 40 years on the backside of the desert. The staff that God directed his attention to at the burning bush. This staff was the symbol of authority to bring to Egypt and demand that Pharaoh let God's firstborn son, Israel, go. This staff was the symbol of power that judged the gods of Egypt. This staff brought water from the rock. He is now literally holding up the standard, the staff of God, for the sake of the sons of Israel, who have now actually become his brothers in the battle. Moses is holding up the standard, the staff of God that God used to move in his life, and he is holding it up so that his brothers in the valley can see him holding up the standard, and they can gain the victory. No longer is Moses just a father and his sons are in the battle. They have become codependent on each other. They need him, and he desperately needs them because he cannot go down there and fight the Amalekites. But what he can do is he can hold up the standard that God has given him his entire life and hold it up for his brothers who are now actually leading the way in this scenario, and he can rally them according to the testimonies that God has given them. In the battle, they are becoming brothers. You see, it is no longer Moses and Aaron engaging God's enemies as the tip of the spear. Moses and Aaron are not the tip of the spear any longer. It is Joshua and the men with him who are in the battle. And they're relying on Moses and Aaron for direction and inspiration, but they are the ones fighting. They are the tip of the spear. So one might think, that if God used Moses and his staff to part the Red Sea, then maybe Moses and his staff should be enough to take out a few Amalekites, right? Maybe to Moses it would seem beneficial to use the same staff that has rock-splitting power and split a few Amalekite heads, you know, just to help out his sons. But that is not what Moses' job is at this point. Moses' job is to hold up the standard that he has been holding up his entire life, but hold it up for his sons who are now brothers in the battle so that they can be the tip of the spear, so they can advance the battle. You see, Moses, like Abraham, has demonstrated trust-grounded obedience. You know that. Moses has demonstrated incredible sacrifice to be there from his trust-grounded obedience. Pastor Wade and and the men on Thursday were preaching about all of Moses' sacrifices in his life for the Israelites. He's demonstrated incredible sacrifices 
And now his job is to hold up the standard of God so that his brothers, who used to be sons in training, who used to be in the tent of meeting, but are now in the valley fighting, and they are now capable men who can win the battle. You see, this is the goal of every father in this house, is that you are raising up sons who become brothers that you hold up the standard for as they are the tip of the spear. Men of God in this room, you have held the staff that you have used to lead. You have held the symbol of God's authority in your hands for your life. You have held the symbol of God's power in your life. And now is the time that to hold up that standard so that your brother's sons may be inspired to keep fighting. Amen. Now is the time to hold up that testimony and inspire the men that are coming up, who are already there and who are ahead of the fathers in this house and get behind them and hold up the standard for them. Do we have men in this house who will hold up the standard? There will be an inspiration to the sons that are becoming brothers. Yeah. Well, that takes us to our fourth foundational element. Wage war by sending your sons as brothers. So in the dark hours of David's reign as king, Absalom was, has usurped the throne. And he is seeking the counsel of those that once advised David. The advisors, Hushai and Ahithophel, are then aiding Absalom in planning an attack on David and his men. Hushai makes a truthful statement comparing Absalom's men to David and his men and the result if they choose to attack. 2 Samuel 17 verse 10 says this. Then even the valiant men whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. Amen. Now beyond the original song of Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. The overwhelming evidence is that the heart of Absalom's men will melt because of David and the men that have become exactly what he is. Look, these men are described in the Hebrew language as B'nai Ha'il, or sons of might, sons of strength, sons of ability, valor, wealth, and force. Amen. Come on. No longer is David standing alone on the battlefield slinging a stone at the head of a giant, but rather he is surrounded by men just as valiant and mighty as he has become. What is our aim as fathers? It's to have sons that become brothers that are just, if not more, valiant men of God than we are. May our sons far surpass where we stand. May their accomplishments gain greater glory for God than ours have altogether. This is you, men. This is you. We do not just view you alone as sons in the faith. We view you as brothers that are the tip of the spear and standing in the battle. Our lives have served as an inspiration. Our lives have been something to get something in motion. 
Oh, but you men are the force that will complete the work of God. We look forward to the rising of sons that become brothers. And our lives will be better for it. Oh, that day when we stand before the Bema seat of Christ. I want to see the glory of my king reflecting on the faces of my brothers who have done more than I have. It is our joy. You see, it's important to note before we go into 2 Samuel 18, where the battle actually takes place, that David made these men into what they are. You need to grasp that. David made these men into who they are, and they would not be who they are without David. David has demonstrated in his life trust-grounded obedience many times. And he demonstrated trust-grounded obedience that produced sacrifice after sacrifice. And David, because of his sacrifice, was enabled to hold up the standard of God through many difficult and prosperous seasons. That's what made these men into who they are. And that is what the men in this room are now. David made these men, they were sons, but he made them into brothers. They were not subservient to David at this point. You see, men like Abimbola, men like Carlos Rueda and Paul Rosales, they have been made who they are by the trust-grounded obedience and sacrifice and standard of other men. But they are not subservient to the men who made them in that way. In fact, they are greater. And that is the goal of our faith. Men like Ubong, men like Juan, men like Damon, men like Josiah, men like Micaiah. You are sons that are growing and you are learning from the trust-grounded obedience and sacrifice of other men. And you are on your way to becoming a brother to these men. That is the goal that we're aimed at. But you have to realize how this happens. And it happens due to a very pivotal attitude of David. You see, these sons are a result of David holding fast to these foundational elements. And David could have simply had an HJIC attitude. He could have had an HJIC attitude towards these men. If you're not sure what that is, it's the head Jew in charge attitude. <laughs> David could have looked at these men and said, hey... I know the struggles that you've had your entire life. You wouldn't be anything without me. I made you into who you are. Therefore, I am in charge of this operation. But while David could have lorded authority over these men, and he definitely earned it, look at what he did in 2 Samuel 18, 1 through 4. Then David mustered the men who were with him. And set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. This phrase coming out of David's mouth, I myself will also go out with you. It's his desire to join his brothers in battle. 
At this point, they are more than just sons. They are the men that have become exactly what he is. And the point of sending them out as brothers is for them to take the lead in waging war. For them to have their experiences of facing death head on. For them to have the opportunity to magnify the years of investment that David has made in them. Look, David's relationship with these men as brothers has matured. It has come to full age. And we know this because of the very next verse. Verse 3. You have to imagine being David as this is going on. But the men said, you shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. You can see the level of trust and authority that David has invested in these men in this moment. Remember, David is still very much the king. But he has raised these sons into brothers, and now he views them as peers, and he has credited them with the authority of being able to speak into his life. David's not the king sitting high on his throne. Instead, he is a kingly saint of God who entrusts kingship to his brothers with him. David has credited them with authority. And you can hear that in the direction that they are giving to David. They tell him, you shall not go out. Now, lest you think that they're just bossing him around, for all of you linguistically gifted saints here today, this verb is not in the imperative. In the Hebrew, this is clear. Rather than demanding David, they're simply telling him in a future sense what is going to happen. They're telling, when David is saying, hey, I will go out with you, they're saying, no, that, that's not going to happen. Can you see the level of trust and authority that he has invested in them? Even over himself. He has placed them over himself. This shows us the incredible investment that David had in these men to allow them to say this. And the amazing humility of David to put them in this position. When he raised them the entire way, he's now placing them over himself. In the NIV, their statements would seem to conclude with, you are worth 10,000, as we have read. But the Young's literal translation is closer to the literal Hebrew, and it says, they are saying to him in the literal Hebrew, but now we are 10,000. They are adding to their direction, to their king, the fact that David has another as in the same kind. And not just one another. David, you now have 10,000 another that you have made. We got this. Let us take it. Amen. They are a, another group of men who are like him because they were fathered by him. Amen. Let's look at verse 4 and see how this concludes. The king, the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. Man, that's humility. 
Man, that's a crushing of pride and a relinquishing of control because David's life had the very first of the seven foundational elements. What a greater level of trust, ground, and obedience than to hear the voice of your sons who become brothers and they are guiding you now as a father. It is your success because they are the mark of succession. What began as a relationship with David as a father in the faith to these sons in the faith has risen to greater heights on the foundation of David's trust. Now these sons have become brothers that are showing the same, if not greater, trust, granted obedience. The same level of sacrifice, the same principle and action of holding up the standard, but all of this done for the benefit of David, even taking the lead in waging war. Not only were these men speaking to David as a brother, you can hear and see in what they said and David's response that their words were filled with fatherly wisdom. They were serving as a guide for a man who needed guidance. He was developing in them the goal of sonship. That sons becoming fathers to their fathers. Sons becoming fathers to their fathers. David recognizes the fatherly voice these men speak with, and that is why he does not have to exert authority or control. He doesn't have to push with force his title or position over them. These men are now doing for him what he has so richly done for them. When we were putting this message together, this cut me straight to the core. Because I'm still very much about my own accomplishments in this life. I'm still very much excited about what I feel like are the accomplishments that God has in store for me. And I can imagine as we're putting this together that my son is telling me one day, Dad, I don't think you should do that. And my response, I know what I'm about, son. I've slayed my ten thousands. And me imagining, I don't have to imagine it. About two months ago, Michael Hall was giving me a serious rebuke in the scripture. And part of me had that response in me. I know what I'm about. I've slayed my ten thousands, Mike. You don't have to go that hard on me. But I'm being cut to the core because I'm realizing that this is what this is all about. Me making Michael Hall better than me. This is how we wage war, church. By sending sons who have become brothers ahead of us and letting them take point of the battle and us following their direction as we hold up the standard for them. That is the goal of what we are doing here. Look, we showed you a picture of a father and son earlier. Capturing the default image that we all have in our minds of a 30-something-year-old man with a son below the age of 10. We're aiming to change the way that we all view a father and son relationship in this house. It is not the perpetual hierarchy of older men of power and younger men subservient to it. I know that's what we think about. When we think about fathering sons, I think about it's always going to be that I am raising up little Joshua and little Joshua is going to follow me into the battle and I'm going to direct little Joshua and then I'll die and he'll have it after I die. No. 
We're not going to have hierarchy of older men in power and younger men subservient. The goal and the true image of father and sons is one that illustrates an older man in his 60s, joined to the side of his sons who have now risen beyond the foundational work and have grown in building a life that fathers their father. We want to show you a picture. This is what fathers and sons looks like. Yeah, this celebrate this, saints. No longer should it be the, the frozen image of our mind when we think of fathers and sons as a 30-year-old and an under 10-year-old. But this is the image. This is the goal. Of a man who has done his labor, who has done his work for the purpose of his sons becoming greater than he is. This picture that we're looking at was taken on September 26, 2021. It was the ordination of Judah, Nick, and Peyton. Each of these men have exhibited greater trust-grounded obedience than we have. They have demonstrated sacrifice in greater proportions. They have held up the standard for us all and are destined to be the men waging war in the heavenly realms of the Middle East as they are sent as brothers and function as fathers. So Baj is standing here in this picture, right here, in front of where we're standing now. And Baj is a towering pillar in the faith. He is standing there blessing his brothers. He's not blessing his sons. He is blessing his brothers. And he is welcoming them as fathers. Many of you have had the opportunity and joy of stopping, stopping by uh, Ashford Memorial Auto Care. You have been able to spend time with both Baj and Nick and Judah and Peyton. And when you're sitting there, you can sense and see the tangible reality of this picture and what we have declared about it. You see their relationship with each other. There is no hierarchy. There is a bond of mutual edification and a lifting up of sons as brothers. For all of us on the leadership team, we have expressed the same desire as David did when he said, I myself will go out with you many times. I myself will help you with this difficulty or that trial. Judah, Nick, and Peyton have all benefited us by saying, no, you shall not go out. We're now 10,000 like you. And when we hear the confidence in these men's voices, it comforts us. They are trustworthy men. But they're not the only trustworthy men in here. This room is filled with sons that are becoming brothers. This room is filled with sons that will be sent out to wage war as brothers. And there's a result of it. So we say men in this room, this is what we are all, you are all to strive to achieve. Let's put some parameters on it. For those of you under the age of 25, 
You shall rise to become brothers in battle. You shall rise to be valiant, mighty, able, forceful men who take the lead in battle and return victorious. For those of you 50 and above, this is the glorious goal. To wage war by sending your sons as brothers. Standing in a position of humility and honoring the fatherly wisdom that they give as a guide for your walk. Giving them strong support from the city. Continually sacrificing all for their advancement. Not taking the lead from them, but relinquishing it to them. The result of putting this fourth foundational element into practice brings us to our fifth foundational element. And that is filling storehouses with plunder. Let's turn to 1 Chronicles 26, 26 through 28. It says, this Shelemoth and his brothers were in charge of all the treasuries of the dedicated gifts that David, the king, and the heads of the fathers' houses, and the officers of the thousands, and the hundreds, and the commanders of the army had dedicated. Who had dedicated? The commanders of the army. From spoil won in battles, they dedicated gifts for the maintenance of the house of the Lord. And all that Samuel the seer, and Saul the son of Kish, and Abner the son of Ner, and Joab the son of Zeruiah had dedicated, all dedicated gifts were in the care of Shelemoth and his brothers. Throughout the course of David's life, he raised men by displaying his trust-grounded obedience that produced sacrifice. David held the standard up, and men rallied to him. Cave of Adullam. David sent these men out as brothers, and these mighty men returned with plunder. Throughout the books of Samuel and Chronicles, David is seen as amassing great wealth and plunder from his enemies, but it falls completely short to say that David amassed the plunder all by himself. David's plunder came from the men that he called brothers and entrusted himself to. He raised these men up, he set them higher than himself, and sent them out, and they gained the spoils of war, and it was credited to David, but it was theirs. They were the ones that won the spoils. These men, in verse 27, are seen following David's example. They knew that this treasury would need to be used in the days to come, and it was their job to fill it for the next generation. We want you to make this point clearly. These men are following in David's example, and they are giving plunder, and they know that there is a generation coming that is going to need the treasury. What happens is they become zealous to wage war by sending brothers like David did. They become so zealous that they want to ensure that brothers would continue to be sent for the generations to come. They know that they can't die with the plunder and take it with them into the world to come. They are going to give it up freely because brothers are going to need to be sent for the generations to come. These are men who are brothers that have become fathers and they're focusing on the next wave of sons and saying, hey, I will fill up the storehouses for you so that you can be sent as brothers. Fathers in this room, you have seen great victories in your lifetime. And now the call of this house 
requires. No, the call of this house mandates. No, the call of this house demands that you fill the treasuries of the brothers that are going to be sent. We, of course, need the funds to complete this call generationally. But more importantly, fathers in this room, we need everything that God has enriched in you and that, and that has come through the battles that you have won. We need the plunder that you have gained by sending sons that are now brothers. We need your experience and we need the treasury to be filled with your testimonies, fathers. It is our righteous mandate and our joy to fill the treasuries of our brothers going into battle with our testimonies, with the encouragements that the Lord has given us, with insight and revelation on how to win. Wouldn't you like to glean from wisdom that shows you how to win before you step into battle? That's the treasury that we're going to share of. To ensure that they have everything they need for their God-ordained task, we must implement foundational element number six. And that is surrender the entire storehouse. First Chronicles 28, verse 11. Then David gave Solomon, his son, the plan of the vestibule of the temple and its houses, its treasuries, its upper rooms, and its inner chambers, and of the room for the mercy seat, and the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord, all the surrounding chambers, the treasuries of the house of God, and the treasuries for dedicated gifts. This passage continues for so much more that we don't have time to read. Read it on your own. But what you'll find is that what made David great is that he understood the purpose of filling up a storehouse. That's what made him great. That purpose was to surrender the entire storehouse to his son who will be seated as a king and the very one who will build God's house. So fathers in this house, look up at me. We are to do likewise and surrender it all. Not some. Surrender it all. No strings attached. No methods of pulling control. No reserve of revelation that has been won in battles of your own. In fact, no pinching of a portion to coast into our golden years. David surrendered it all because he was building with ever-increasing trust, grounded obedience. And so was, must we. This was the sacrifice God was aiming to achieve through David to his son Solomon. And it would provide a foundation that Solomon would use to go on and build the very temple of God on earth in the city that God has chosen for his name to dwell. In the city that our Messiah will return back to and glorify to a greater proportion. So this brings us to our seventh and final foundational element. It's found in 1 Chronicles 26, 16. And it's entrusting present-day accomplishments to our son, brothers. 
O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made for which I have made provision. Do you see how foundational element number six leads directly into this? When you surrender the entire storehouse well, when you surrender everything to your sons, it causes you to entrust them with all of the present day accomplishments. It's no longer your accomplishments, it is their accomplishments, and you can stand behind it and say, no, that is them. They are the ones accomplishing this. In this passage, David is declaring the source of his trust-grounded obedience when he says, O Lord, our God. He is saying that it's been God's possession and God's provision the entire time. Therefore, it is a joy to give it back to him by surrendering it to the sons and the, who are really brothers. God of Abraham, direct them as you directed our founding fathers. You see the level of him stepping back out of the way and saying, Lord, now direct them like you've directed me. It is their accomplishments now, mine are past. You have provided me, provided for me in the past, and I trust that you will provide for Solomon in the present as he begins, as his light dawns and mine fades. I entrust the present day accomplishments to you, God, by entrusting them to my son, Solomon. You see, when we as fathers build with these foundational elements, our sons are certain to rise to be of greater splendor. But if we keep holding on to the accomplishments for ourselves and claiming that they're ours and crediting them to ourselves, they will never rise to become greater than us. But when we credit them with the accomplishments starting now, they will rise up under the weight of it. They are our joy and crown because they have become our brothers who guide us as fathers. Where we now are in this message is at a point where we have seven clear steps of foundational elements. And these steps are linear. But we want to let you know they're not just linear alone. We have our final slide that directs us what we must now do. Seven foundational elements in a chiastic structure. You can see that, that foundational element number three, holding up the standard, it causes you to fill storehouses with plunder. When you hold up the standard of God, the plunder that comes to you via the men that you raise up allows you to put that plunder back into their storehouse. When you focus in on foundational element number two and your sacrifice, it directly leads 
to you surrendering the entire storehouse. When you live a life of sacrifice, the day will come where it is not hard for you to surrender the entire storehouse that God has given you and you sacrifice it and give it to them for their futures. When you look at foundational element number one, you will see that your trust-grounded obedience directly leads to you entrusting all present-day accomplishments to your son. You living a life of trust-grounded obedience will cause your faith to God and rise that he will do the same for your sons. But the unparalleled truth, where this all hinges on, where this is made, where this grows and becomes a reality, is when we wage war by sending our sons as brothers. This is the unparalleled truth where all of the thoughts and talk actually become actions and we start to see it form and rise up on the earth. When we begin to go into the fray and determine ourselves to go into the battle, not as the heroes, but to allow our sons to be the heroes and we march behind them taking their direction, that is how we get to the greater glory of being able to fill their storehouses with plunder, to be able to surrender the entire storehouse to them and to entrust present-day accomplishments solely to them. We must in this house become strong in the battle with our sons leading the way as brothers. What God is directing this house is for the fathers in the room to grab a son, a son that is yours, a son that is not yours biologically, but you begin to credit them with being better than you and you say, you lead the way, I will follow and I will direct you from behind. I will give you instruction along the way. What God is causing in this house for the sons to rise up and say, I know that I am a son of God. I am secure as a son. Therefore, I'm going to emulate my father knowing that I am become like him or better than him. God is directing our hearts to what we saw in this picture. Sound booth, can we put that picture of the kibbutz ordination back on the screen? May God stamp our eyes with this vision. Because what God wants to do is this with so many families and sons and generations. May we have this in the forefront of our minds because this is the goal. It's a beautiful picture seeing a son with a young, or seeing a father with a young son. But this is what God is aiming at right here. For us fathers in the room to look at our sons now as if they're better than us and begin to build them up as if they're better than us. Because they are. And they will be. See, the right hand of that slide on the chiastic structure is what we're aiming at. Sons, in this house, it is tasked to you to rise up now with courage, with all of the affirmation of heaven, and know that you're a secure son. It's time to put to death those thoughts and feelings that you are subservient and you will never grow or amount to anything in this body. It's time to put away the lies of the enemy that says you are not worthy of it, you are not capable of it, you can't do it, and it's time to rise up in the trust-granted obedience that we see in our fathers and run after this. It's time that we attach ourselves to these fathers in the house with full confidence. God put me here because he wants me to be like them and better. Amen. The day is coming where they won't be here, saints. And then who does it fall to? 
What God is highlighting is for fathers in this room, grab your sons, your spiritual sons. Credit them with being better than you. Credit them. Stop looking at them as subservient. Stop looking at them as, I'm the one who's better. I have been trained up. They're lower than me. They can't do what I do. But I get to be in the position that I get all the glory because I'm teaching them. What God wants is for us to step behind them. Churches, you stand to your feet. We want to ask. Before we get to that point, let's all have a seat. I know it feels like Catholic Mass. Just be thankful we didn't ask you to kneel on that concrete. Couldn't be more proud of who we are as a church. Well, I'll applaud the tenacity over time that you guys have shown and the fruit of who we are as a church is because of your faithfulness and trust-grounded obedience. I'd like to invite my brother, Elder Eric, to come close us out. You'll know we've developed a little bit of our own ritual, whether we wanted to or not, where we close in a certain way, and then we worship a little while, have an altar time, and then we close again. It's like a Southern Pentecostal meeting that just never ends, you know. All we need to do is add a dance-off, and we'll have a real party. I fully trust that the brothers... We're closing in an extraordinary way. And I think it's necessary because what is done here is setting an example for all of the churches as well. Uh, so I want to address fathers in the room and those listening online. And then sons. And then we'll close together. How many of you identify with when you hear the words father and son, you think of an image like Paul and his son Samuel? A great disparity. Matthew 23 actually teaches us that we are not allowed to look at things that way. Call no man father. Call no man rabbi. Call no man teacher. For you have one father and he's in heaven. You have one teacher or instructor and he's the Christ. This has always presented a, a real difficulty when you engage with that because all of those titles are in fact godly and used in the scripture. So you really have to wrestle with what they mean. He actually says, call no man father for you are all brothers. The primary way that we must relate to one another is not in a hierarchy. It is always as brothers. If there were a hierarchy, it's based on service. So if I see Memo as a brother and Memo sees me as a brother, but my brotherly service to him is greater than that which his father gave him, then he may say to me, you're like a father. But I could never require that of Memo. Actually, Matthew 23 forbids that. 
So around the one association, because we're preaching about fatherhood and sons, and all, people are very excited to declare themselves fathers. You would never have to declare yourself a father if you were a father. I've never had to say to Judah or Gabriel or Cody, or hey, you remember I'm your father. Do you hear how insecure that is? All right, so some bone-crushing conviction. The bottom of that chiastic structure is essentially the verse 2 Samuel 18.4. And, and I want to engage it for a second. The king, come on, somebody say king. king. The king, the father, said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. Do you know what that is? That's the very image of success. When you think about that picture of ordination, don't be mistaken with Peyton's vertical challenge. He's physically stronger and faster than almost every man in this room. I mean, it's shocking. You know, he rips out 24 pull-ups right away, gets up and runs five to seven miles after spending an evening doing things that a lot of Christians wouldn't do. Don't mistake Judah's youth as a weakness. He's got a will that cannot be broken. When you think of Nick Eregina, have you ever met a man that had more scriptural acumen than he does? See, as fathers, we see them as brothers... Not as, we don't see ourselves as fathers. They see us as fathers, and we see them as brothers. And what we have to acknowledge in any of you in this, I was met by a gray-haired club when I walked in. Men celebrating that, that we've got some gray hair, and I, I appreciate it. What we have to acknowledge is despite all of Tom's efforts to be fit, and, and he is fit for his age, he's nowhere near a match for those three men, not on any level. Jerry, the same is true of you, the same is true as me, of me, the same is true of you, Charlie. And when older men act superior to younger men, it reveals the flaw in the older man, not the younger. The goal that we are shooting for as a group is when you can look at those that you sowed into their life and receive their instruction as superior to yours. Man, that is what real fatherhood and sonship is. You know how funny it is to me to watch a young man from Port Lavaca that came in as kind of a hippie surfer in a strange cowboy kind of way? <laughs> Instruct me on the original languages of the Bible. But he is so much better at it than I am. And that is an accomplishment. So let's talk. Insecure fathers keep their sons small because these puny fathers seek validation from their son's need of them. And when I say fathers, I'm talking to you mothers as well. If every story that you tell is about your usefulness to the kingdom because of their need for you, that is because you are a tragically broken person. 
and you need them to need you for you to have any worth. You may even see yourself as a lifter of the weak, but the reality is you're one that needs them to be weak so that you feel like you have some validation. That's sickening. And I hear it in this house, and I certainly hear it in the other houses of the One Association. If you celebrate the times that you had to give instruction to someone, you've missed the point of your instruction. Your instruction is so that you will not have to instruct them in those areas, and they can remind you in your old, frail weakness of the original standard that you first demonstrated to them. Ironically, you can never be valid by seeking validity from other people's need of you. Your validity is literally based upon producing people that are more capable than you. That's what makes you valid. I find it funny that those that have never done that talk the most about what fathers and mothers they are in the faith. You want to be a really accomplished saint? Make others great. Make others great and make yourself small. Don't make others great for the purpose of looking great in people's eyes. Make yourself small. Fathers, mothers, I think you really need to think about that. It's like a pastor that berates his congregation and thinks that they're stupid and they're small and doesn't realize he's actually talking about himself. That's his life's work. Sons in this house. It's not uncommon for sons to want to become equal before their time. We were talking about a little Joshua earlier. I've watched Joshua put on Hulk hands, and he believes he can punch through walls. At the time, he couldn't punch through a wet paper bag. But the time is coming when he'll be a match for any man. And that's to his father's glory. Some sons want to remain immature. They want to be told what to do their whole lives. They want that because they don't want the responsibility for hearing from God for their own lives. Sons in this house, you need to figure out which end of the spectrum you're on and repent from that. It is not a credit to your father if you cannot make a decision. Your heavenly father or your earthly fathers. It is not a credit to your father if you cannot listen to their advice. Do you hear the delicate balance that has to happen in all of this? A father has to be looking for the moments where he can say, Son, that is right and I will follow it. A son has to be looking for moments where it is appropriate for him to ask for guidance from his father. And then do it, but never depend solely on guidance from his father. In fact, son should be saying, look, I also have discovered water. What prevents me from being baptized? Suggesting the next course of their life and checking with their fathers to go in my own track. That's to everybody's credit. And it'll take you from a eunuch to a king. The aim of discipleship is producing men that can give you direction that you would follow. I want to just read Hebrews 5, and then I'm going to hand this back 
to these extraordinary men of God. But I wanted this on recording, and I'm going to stamp it on your souls to the best of my ability, because this is how we win. Hebrews 5.14, but solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That is how we mature, constant training. We got any young fathers in the house? It's an extraordinary thing to be responsible for a life that you have no idea what to do with. And it matures you even as they're maturing and you stay slightly ahead of them until that day. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Sons and fathers actually mature together. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works of faith towards God. My suggestion is that this altar today is for fathers and mothers that don't realize that they're actually seeking validation by their disciples' need of them. Your validation should come from the day your disciples do not have need of you, but would never live without you. This altar today would be for sons that have made the rebellious mistake of seeking to be equal before their time, cannot take direction, are obstinate, that always think they know better. But that's not most in this house. It is some, but not most. The other side of the coin for the sons at the altar here today would be you so admire the men that have gone before you that you see such a disparity between you and them that you're paralyzed and cannot make decisions. That does not honor your father. Everyone who seeks, everyone who asks, everyone who seeks, everyone who knocks, finds. You're actually disparaging the character of both of your fathers your earthly one, and your heavenly one, as if you do not receive good things when you cannot determine direction for your life. All guidance is gained at your equality, not your subordination. I think that whether fathers or mothers or sons, we have two sides of the coin in this group and in every church in the one association. And this adjustment has to be made or we will re-erect the very hierarchy that the whole Protestant Reformation sought to tore down. We do not need a pope, archbishops, queer cardinals, and local parish priests, and then laity incapable of understanding the Bible. What we actually need is an army where 10,000 are exactly like the king where the king would follow any of the soldiers because he taught them and they've become better than him. That is what we're shooting for. And I know that we need to make adjustments in our heart at this altar. And when we've made those adjustments, well, victory is ours in advance of the battle. 
Because this is how the battle is won. Amen. So brothers, what must you do? You must deal with whatever God's pointing out to you right now. You must come to the altar as we stand and deal with your heart in whatever area God is dealing with you. The mighty God, we thank you for the revelation that you're pouring out in this house. Lord, we thank you for the foundational elements that you've given us. We pray now, Lord, that we would find favor. Lord, we come to the altar knowing that you are merciful. And we ask that you deal with us according to your will. Lord, that you would deal with the areas of our hearts that have been there for so long.